Welcome to Miked Up Sports, the show that gives people in sports an unfiltered platform to share their stories. If you want to help us tell more stories, check us out at patreon.com slash television, paypal.me slash television, or on Cash App at TSB Television. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. What would you make of everything that has happened in the last month? I imagine you've heard about the death of George Floyd and what we have seen since then is almost unprecedented in terms of the scale and response and some of the changes that governments, businesses, and citizens are making. So I want to get your thoughts on what you've seen in the last month and what you make of that. Well, I would say um, it would be unprecedented in the context that we didn't necessarily see this type of uprising coming, but um, as people of color or as black people specifically living in the United States, this is something that it feels like a long time coming. And hopefully that the steam won't die down. For me, it was kind of like a sense of relief, a sense of relief of people actually opening their eyes to things that happen every single day. George Floyd is one in a million, literally um, thousands of people are killed um, that we know about. And there's a lot of violence that we don't know about. So for me, it was a, a sign of hope that a movement will, will begin. Um, for me, it was kind of like expected, so to say. Minnesota has definitely been passive aggressive with the racism, but George Floyd's death really, I feel like woke up the state, woke up people who were sleeping on the movement, but I'm glad that the response we've had and that we continue to have is coming about of like from it, but yeah. Um, personally, I feel like it was like it wasn't necessarily a big surprise that it happened, but it for me it was a big surprise that we finally came together and you know wanted a change. Like obviously we've wanted a change. Like this happened with Philando a couple years back, so it's like we can't keep we fight, but then nobody hears us. So people didn't agree with all the things that were happening at first, but then they realized like what else that's the only way that we can get people to understand like we want to change and that's what we want like i'm happy with all the protests that have been happening i went to one and it was just, it was actually like such a eye opening experience like just being able to be part of the change especially our generation like we are the generation that has to make the change so yeah. I'd say definitely agreeing with Nevea. Um, it was definitely surprising, but not necessarily in the sense that like I knew the protests were going to be happening, just not as big as a, like an impact, especially for it to just kind of go like like nationwide. Like everybody was protesting and all that, so it was definitely it was definitely nice to see that. But at the same time, you know, we also have to keep in mind like what they're what like, what we're protesting for necessarily, because sometimes I felt like some people got off track on what they were what their motivation was but i definitely think that it was much needed and um it was good to see much more of an uprising than when um, philando got killed 
because like there was small protests, but like there wasn't that big of a change. Like now there's like all types of changes that are like starting to actually like happen, which is like really nice to see. And that's really surprising to me because when Philando was murdered, it was extremely brutal. The fact that he uh -huh. was to death in front of his daughter and his wife. Mm -hmm. So it just goes to show that it's the, not to say that George Floyd is the straw because his, he holds a lot of weight, but again, like these are, these are moments that build on each other. And you all touched on this theme of passive aggressiveness or build up with Philando Castile or Jamar Clark the year before. And when George Floyd's killing was shown on camera, I haven't seen the video in full and I don't care to just because I, I've seen, <laughs> it's one of those things where I get uh, riled up when I see stuff like that. So I try to look after myself, but what do you think has led to this more assertive stance as opposed to this passive aggressive tone where with Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, there were protests and there certainly was a response and there were people demanding change, but it kind of faded and I've noticed this in the past where I think folks think if we just let this subside, it will go away. And as we see more and more names in the news and even in this last month, uh, following George Floyd, Breonna Taylor's death is still unresolved. And there was Richard Brooks from Atlanta. I think we're coming to a realization that if we haven't already, that this issue isn't going away. I feel like I, I feel like that is like we're we're so tired of seeing our people dying so much and it's it's police brutality we're tired of seeing the people that are supposed to protect us kill us you know like will Philando I feel like he should not have been murdered I feel like the situation could have been handled way differently there was four cops and there could have been something different that could have happened during that situation. Like, we're just so tired of seeing the same things repeat. And the protest was harder because nobody said, nobody did anything a couple years back. So there had to be a change now. I think it's a mixture of that. And then being that we're in a pandemic, nobody really has anything to do. So, I mean, if you're not out there talking about this issue, it's like, what are you doing? It's are you not supporting it or like what people will look at you like well what side are you on at that point because there's just nothing to do now just, i feel like or you can go ahead no i, I was just saying it as a mix That's okay <laughs> and i feel like our generation is finally old enough mm -hmm. to use our voices use our education educate ourselves and educate others where people will actually listen so i think it took to like this point where we're actually strong enough to do something about it? Um, I think that when we're talking about a buildup, we have to, we can't ignore the major effects from enslavement that is still exists today. When we're talking about mass incarceration, the school to prison pipeline, when we're talking about a buildup, we're talking about 
dealing with passive aggressive teachers who are racist. We're, we're talking about dealing with people on the street who don't respect you. We're talking about being in basketball games and the refs are clearly blatantly racist. These are the passive aggressive things that we're talking about dealing with every day. It's not only us turning on the TV and seeing people who look like our brothers, our sisters, us dying in front of us consistently. It's not only that, but it's from history. We've seen our people strung up, lynched from trees, um, beaten with bull whips, you know, like tortured. Like this, this isn't something that it's just like, whoa, where did this come from? To me, it's just, it's heart aching to see that people haven't seen it for so long. And in Minnesota, I think that we want to pretend like, oh, we're in the North, like it's not a big deal. That's why I feel like it's so powerful that the, the whole United States is eyes were on Minnesota like whoa there's black people there there's racism there like I couldn't imagine that happening so now when I tell people I'm from Minnesota it's a completely different reaction than it was before it's like wow you also understand because being black in this world not only this country um the darker your skin is the more persecuted persecuted you will be so um that's when we're talking about a build-up this is something that's been happening for hundreds of years Serena, to your point, I go back to the film 13th, which I just watched a couple of days ago. That was uh, one of the recommended uh, films uh, for viewing, and it touches on a lot of the points you bring up and how it's still difficult, even though we have made progress, there are a lot of difficulties and obstacles for men and women of color that folks like myself don't have to worry about. And that's one reason I started this podcast series was just this uh, dissatisfaction that unless I do something really, really blatant, you would never suspect me of any wrongdoing or misbehavior. But whether, for you guys, whether it's directly or a family member, someone you know, someone you love, you don't necessarily have that shield. And to me, that is a problem. Um, well, I'm also learning, being at Spelman, being biracial, it, it's a historically black college university that uh, white privilege exists also when you're mixed and biracial. So the darker that your skin is, the more you'll get persecuted. For instance, if I walk into a room, white people, there may be a chance that I could um, kind of fit in or try to, you know, um, uh, stay afloat in a sense. But if I was darker, it's automatic prejudice. Um, so I think that we can use our privilege in different ways as well, just like men have different privilege than women. Um, but I think it's important for us in this movement to understand who we are and what role that we can play and what role that we have. Because um, there's a lot of different intersectionalities to this. Um, there's, there's homophobia, there's colorism, um, there's sexism, there's so many different levels. Like we, we he hear this huge movements behind men, um, Tamir Rice, George Floyd, um, all the way back to um, the young man that was killed um, back in, uh, I don't remember his name. Um, oh yeah, Emmett Till. Um, it's been happening for a very long time, but when it comes to women who are brutalized, um, a lot of times we don't see their faces or hear their names. Uh, Breonna Taylor, again, is one of many, many, many people. There was a woman in Canada who was thrown off a balcony by by some officers and these that are was like recent that wasn't even that long ago. yeah yeah it was recent it's like these things happen so common it's like well you know sometimes we don't even want to hear about it because it's like again you know that's what's so bad about it is that it's so common to us it's like it's not even like 
it doesn't like even really hit you. Like when I watched the George Floyd video, it wasn't even like, I was so desensitized to it. It was like, well, this is, it's like another, another it's another day in, in, America, in like America. It's not anything new really. And that's what's just so bad about it. And it's just like, so it like hurts your heart to like think like that's not even something that we're like even, we're so desensitized to it and it's just bad. And for the four of you, I asked this from my high school panel. And since you brought up the subject of desensitization, I want to get your thoughts on it because I have to imagine it's surreal that you've seen this so often, whether it's the people who led to the Black Lives Matter movement following Trayvon Martin eight years ago, or Tamir Rice, or you know George Floyd just a month ago, or you know, going way back in history, you mentioned Emmett Till or all the lynchings, the Duluth lynchings were a hundred years ago. There's so much, so many of these stories. I have to wonder how surreal is it that you come across this again and again, and it gets to a point where you're just numb. That just seems odd. Um, for me personally, it was always, I mean, just being black in America, it's being like, I've been numb my whole life to it, but George Floyd's death hit me a little different. Cause literally my dad was raised two blocks away from where he was killed. He like played on that, like that corner. Like they used to all hang out right there. So, and he's the one who showed me the video at like seven o'clock when I woke up that morning, but that one definitely hit me harder. Cause that literally could have been my dad. Like, my, he probably drove down that street a day earlier, like, literally could have been him. So, yes, I'm numb to it, but now I'm an angry numb, so to say, but yeah. I like that, that I, angry numb. I like that. That's a good way to describe it. Go ahead, Olivia. Sorry. I just feel like, yeah, I agree with Olivia. Like, we grew up and we had to, you know, growing up black in America you have to watch everything that you do so it's like we're being taught in a sense to become numb and it's so normalized to watch what you do watch the movements that you do when you're around police officers or you know white people in the store they get scared they clutch their purse because you're going closer to them like it's like oh I'm used to it you know like it's just something that we had to grow up with. And I do agree with Olivia, like this last one with George Floyd just hit, it, it, it did hit different because it's like, could have been anybody really, could have been any one of our parents, any one of our brothers. And it's just, it's tiring to see that, that this has to keep happening, that it just keeps happening. Like, yeah, and the fact that our parents like have to teach us to like mind your p's and q's like that's always something my dad would say he's always like make sure you mind your p's and q's and like i was always taught like to make sure i respect the officers if i get stopped and whatnot and it's like it's not something that a lot of children like a lot of white children they don't have to be taught that necessarily like it's it's something that we like black people of color have to learn in order to like kind of be like safe and that is just it, it actually, it just really needs to stop, I, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. 
And that's where the stereotype angry black woman comes from. Um, like, oh, black women are so angry all the time. Well, I mean, I wonder why. Um, and I, I think that it's important to acknowledge like, although something's numb, it doesn't mean the feelings aren't there, aren't happening. It's just, you have to be numb because it's like, what am I gonna do about it? Like, what, what if it's my life, you know, next? Well, I'd say you oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's another thing that like really sucks is like when you have to think about like your other family members lives. Like I constantly think about uh, my stepbrother, his life. He always runs around with all of his friends and they always like to do crazy stuff. And it's like, well, what if he is out there and we don't know what's going on? And next thing you know, we get a call that he's been shot by a cop because he was monkeying around in somebody's neighborhood or something like that. Like that's just something that you always have to keep in the back of your head when they go out. So Avery, I wanted to follow up on something you said, and for the other three, feel free to share your thoughts as well. But do you recall the first time you got that talk about minding your P's and Q's? It's something that I've seen referenced in films with predominantly black casts like The Hate You Give. But to get that kind of interaction or intervention, as you said, something I didn't have to worry about growing up. So when you were told about minding your P's and Q's for the first time, how did you take it? Um, well, I was pretty young because it was the first time I spent the night at one of my white friend's houses. But um, I just kind of, as a, like, like some like I thought in my head, oh, well, every parent must say that. Like, that must be just something that, you know, it's what's taught to kids. And then as I kind of got older and started hearing more about like police brutality, I kind of put two and two together and like more about like segregation and like discrimination, like the more and more I learned about that, the more and more I like understood what my dad was trying to tell me without necessarily like coming out and telling me. Yeah, my dad kind of did the same thing. He wouldn't make it about race and make it about the color of my skin, but it's more of like, these are gonna be how you act, this is how you should act around these certain people. But well, it wasn't, we weren't brought up on it, being about race but as we got older definitely connected the dots yeah i was raised by a single white mother so i did not get that talk i had to have firsthand experience uh, i was on my way home from a volleyball game i was with e i'm sure y'all know e and my other some other teammates at the time and i had a taser and i was just showing them my taser and then the next thing i know i hear drop it and i turn around i have a gun like five inches from my head, like, and like in that moment, I knew like at any point of us, like wrong move, you know, and like he called my mom and was like, you're lucky I didn't blow, my partner didn't blow your daughter's head off. And like when I got arrested, um, he was like, let me guess, you identify as black. I'm like, like, it's like in that moment, like I never felt like, wow, like anything that I say and do could cost me my life. Like, it's not even when you're in the process of being arrested, but that whole process afterward, when you're in the back of the car, when you're getting books, when you're sitting in the cell, like at any moment, they have complete control over you. So that's why it's like, if I can control myself outside in public and when they don't see me, um, then when I get behind closed doors, I can hopefully do what I want. But as we see in the case of Breonna Taylor and so many others, it doesn't even matter if you're in the safety of your home, so. Zarina, do you recall just the shock or any, the trauma that you had a gun to your head at such a young age 
over a taser. And as you noted, you know, it could have ended far worse than it did, but that still is a crazy story to hear. I mean, I was just thankful that it went the way it went because that was right after Sandra Bland had was murdered in her cell, you know, like, so I was thankful to have been released that night. But also like another issue that I had was the fact that my mom waited until the morning to come get me. And honestly, I feel like that's where some of the, the lapses, I feel like if my mother was black or I had, well, like, you know, if, if my father was around or something, I feel like they would have seen the dangers of me being behind bars like that and, and came and got me regardless of what the situation is. But like to teach me a lesson on something that you don't even know what's going on, you haven't talked to me. Um, I feel like that's also something like being biracial in this kind of movement, it's like, whoa, like <laughs> what, you know, like you wanna advocate and you want to stand there um, and be there, but you have people on both sides telling you that you don't belong in either space. So it's just like, you know, um, I've been trying to figure out, you know, my space and like the movement and figuring out, you know, what that means. And for the four of you to continue on Zarina's point, and it doesn't have to be as dire, but if you don't mind sharing, it's up to you. You can share as much as you'd like with this, but do you recall the first time you dealt with an experience involving racism or prejudice and what you felt after that encounter? I remember it like the back of my hand, personally. Um, I was at Target with my mom, um, my mom's white, and so was like the rest of her family. And I saw my uncle, I think I was maybe like, I was super young, cause I got really excited to see my uncle and like I yelled down like the big lane. I was like, uncle, and then a kid of college, um, boys had walked by like a group of them there's maybe like four and they were like yeah right twice removed and i wasn't even paying attention but my mom had pulled over into another lane at target or in the aisle and she was like she started crying and like was like really upset and frustrated and i didn't quite understand it and i didn't even really understand it till a few years later on like what they were trying to say but like that that happens quite a bit especially when i'm with like my my white family um, I, I get looks at, I look, get looked at quite often, especially when we're at my cabin and we go up to there, like it's a really small town. They don't really get very many people of color. So I'm always stared at. That's just, it kind of comes with the territory, I guess, of being biracial. I would say um, it really didn't happen too much until like Minnehaha, really. Like you start to kind of see um, some of the, some, you start to see the the difference between growing up in like the places that I grew up and then growing up, going to school at Minnehaha. You kind of live two different lives in a way. Um, just like even listening to some of the things that the kids would say, like I just remember one conversation, we were like talking about what to bring to like the potluck or something. And yeah. they're like, well, do you want to bring the chicken or do you want to bring the watermelon? And it's like, what? Like, that's just one normal stereotype that we have. But like, the biggest one from Minnehaha, I was in history class and we were going over our, um, it was something, we were going over a test or something. And um, the teacher, it was a conversation about how do you, how did you pick a slave? Like, how did you pick where, a slave went 
And when I would have those conversations, I wouldn't say much because I always wanted to listen to what other people had to say because it was a predominantly white school. So I wanted to see their, like what they would say. But the conversation came to me and I was like, I'd rather not answer the question. And she was, the conversation went on and she kind of went, well, what kind of slave do you think you would be? And I was like, can you ask me that question? Like, <laughs> is that a question that you can really ask me? And then, then she proceeded to say, well, we would probably, if we were being technical, you would probably be a house slave. And at that point, I was like, I was so baffled and I didn't know what to say. I like, I couldn't, I didn't know, I didn't have any words. And at that point, everybody just kind of stopped and looked like, what? And those are the conversations that were had like at the school. And I loved my school, don't get me wrong, but it was, there were certain kids and there were certain teachers that you kind of had to question, like, did they really say that, you know? made you feel awkward it was so awkward I didn't know what to do I was frustrated I had to walk out of the class because you know I didn't I couldn't say I couldn't form any words Mm -hmm. to to say back to her because it's like you are a teacher and your husband is black and you know that you would never say that to your husband Mm -hmm. so it's just like what did you even think was going to come out of that really Mm -hmm. but that's that was weird. yeah. That was like probably one of the worst experiences that I've had at Minnehaha, to be honest. She even made my mom feel uncomfortable. And my mom's a white woman as well. And she asked my mom on how to raise a, like biracial children. And like she kept asking stuff about race. And this was during conferences and they were supposed to be talking about my grades. It was like, okay. Yeah. Um, my first I didn't even realize I was like biracial, so to say. I just thought it was normal until I went to middle school and everyone started calling me yellow. I was like, I just thought I was just a kid here to have fun, learn a little bit. But after that, I started picking up on how like, I didn't always fit in with the majority white group or the black girls. Like they always, each group felt different about biracial people. And, like, I've had probably the same experiences that Dulacelle as Nevaeh had at Minnehaha. It's definitely real, but you don't expect it from the people who are educating you, who are supposed to protect you, who are supposed to make you into the woman you're supposed to become. But it was, ever since I found out I was yellow, it's been staring me in my face every day. I'd say another thing is, like, even playing basketball, you see it so much, like, the far-out tournaments that we would go to, like, but I don't even remember where we were playing. It was a Christmas tournament or something. There Mm -hmm. was somebody, one of us was shooting a free throw. Do you ever, obviously, everybody has seen all of our teams. Like, we had a, a good number of Black people on our team. And it would always be the go back to where you came from, comments or like shooting a free throw somebody was like do you want some what was it Avery watermelon or I think it was yeah it was one of those two they're like do you want some watermelon with that shot or something and it's like you can say what you want to say but at the end of the day people don't realize that athletes 
athletes are still real people and we can still hear the things that they're saying on the sidelines as much as we don't want to hear them we still do and it the comments come from parents like you guys are grown and we are in high school college you're supposed to be teaching your kids and you and we wonder where it comes from that's where it stems from their parents basketball that one was because there was a providence game too when i was shooting like the last free throw to like yeah win the game and i guess i didn't even i personally didn't hear it but i guess like the student section was like yelling like walmart like a bunch of like just like racist stuff like where did you get your socks walmart or something something like that i personally didn't hear it but i guess a bunch of people other people heard it and i, I mean it was dealt with i feel like like, I think it was dealt with pretty good, but it was, like, at the same time, it's, like, you, like, really need to teach your school about, like, diversification, because I know you don't have very many Black people there, but it's, like, you shouldn't even think, like, that shouldn't even be a thought in your head that you should yell that. Like, I don't, yeah. That's the issue is that the institution supports that behavior. These institutions, the overall institution, that's, that's why they feel comfortable screaming those things at the top of their lungs at a basketball game, because white privilege means that you know that there's not going to be any repercussions because you're talking to a person who doesn't benefit from that privilege. Like, I remember the first time that happened in a game because it's, it's different when it's a player. If it's a player in the game, then please say something. But yeah. <laughs> sideline or something like that, that's different. So when it's people on the sideline, um, I remember this one game at Como. I don't even remember the school playing. Um, and they were just so bad to the point where they, like, ended up saying that we were gonna have like a meeting afterward, but it never happened, it happened. It was like, they just took it as a joke. They're like, yeah, we'll have a meeting with you. Don't worry about it. And then a few weeks later, everybody forgot about it. It's because it's so normalized. Um, but we need to set higher standards for our institutions. And I feel like penalties need to start being more aggressive. Like when they wanted to do the war on drugs and they wanted to prove a point, they wanted to like show people that we're hard on crime. Well, let's be hard on racism. If you're either racist or you're anti-racist. If you're not actively fighting against racism, then you fall into the other category. I'm just trying to process everything you had said. I had no idea that the, there was a derogatory term known as yellow until what you just said, Olivia. And then uh, just a reminder of how much we all have to learn in this. Uh, on that point, being basketball athletes, how do you handle situations like that where you're called out or you hear these derogatory terms like chicken or watermelon or you know, some of the things Arena was saying. You, know, you, you, you manage it, I guess, or you find a way to move forward as best you can, but at the same time, I have to imagine it hurts to hear that and it's coming from fellow students. And as you alluded to, there's not always a system or a process that can address those behaviors. And yeah, it, it, <laughs> sorry if I'm not making any sense here, if it's hard coming or finding words, but it's just really harrowing to hear some of the things you dealt with because I've covered all four of you as basketball athletes. And I know I would never say anything like that, but to hear others who fall in your age group say those things, that's really disheartening. That's one of those things where the first time you hear it, it's like, what? Like, cause did you really just say that to me or about me or about my team? And, you know, it's just 
sometimes afterwards, like, depending on the things that they would say, like, I know we were playing on in a three-on-three tournament um, the in Wisconsin. So it's like, even when you go play places, you have to, my mom and our parents, like, they have to give us pep talks. Like, we're in a different place, predominantly white. You don't know what they're going to say, what they're going to do. You know, like, it's like one of those mental things where you hear it and then you have to, like, you have to hear it and then let it go. Like, as much as you don't want to, you have to let it go in that time being because we're told you still need to play. You know, like, there's no stopping. You can't just go stop and have a conversation in the middle of a game because somebody said something to you. And that's another thing, the numbness. That's where the numbness comes back. Like, you're used to it. Yeah, and, well, I spent my first two years down south in Nashville, but I went to a predominantly white school, and I literally probably every day, my coach would say some type of microaggression. Like, one day he told me to put my hands up like I was getting arrested by the cops. I personally have never been arrested. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know how to do that. Um... (laughs) But that was literally an everyday type of thing. So me being more educated, knowing about my history and where we come from, right then and there, in practice, I was not going to argue back with my coach, any of that. But I've learned to step aside, speak very professionally, very how we're taught to, and get my point across now. But definitely, like... When we were in high school, I could ne- you could you couldn't pay me a million dollars to do that, but now I know how to. That's what I'm trying to work on. That's what I need to work on. Lord help me, seriously. I <laughs> mean, because when I hear stuff like that, I I this is why I had to go to HBCU. Like I like if at Como, everybody knew what I was raising my hand about in class. Everybody knew what I'm about to say because I can't do it. Like I. I can't be numb. Like I, every time I see a video, I'm crying. That's why I don't watch them. Like every time I see another young boy snatched out of his home and taken to be incarcerated, like this is what I, you see when you live in the inner city, you constantly see people that you grew up with taken away to jail. And you know that if they just had access to different knowledge or, or different situations that you see people up the block have, they wouldn't be in that situation or young girls who stay in abusive relationships or end up getting pregnant earlier and don't have resources to help. And you saw all the things that they could have been capable of, but the system, the cycle breaks people down. Like when I first came down here to college, like it was so bittersweet because I felt like I was leaving so many people behind. And like, that's why I think we have to figure out ways that we don't have to change, you know, like uh, I, I know, like I definitely need to control my emotions because that's just, that's just a given. And, you know, that, that's the type of thing that could put me into a category that I can't necessarily get out of because of racism. But it's just like, also, we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to silence ourselves for our life or for the livelihood of our people, or because we're the only black person in the class and we don't want to represent black people that way. It doesn't matter. They're going to see black people how they see black people regardless. So I think that, you know, we should, we should cultivate more spaces where we can speak our truth because 
obviously we're all dealing with these things just in separated areas. So I feel like we should come together and um, create a space for us. I definitely would say like growing up, like especially during basketball games, I kind of was just numb to it. I was like, whatever, I'm not even gonna think about it. It happened, I'm not, it's not in my control now. And like the older I've gotten, the more I find it, like I'm quick to like bark, but like, I don't even think about what I'm about to say. Like I just start like yelling and yelling and yelling. And I like need to like filter like things that I'm saying or else I'm really gonna get caught up and it's not gonna be good. Yeah. I, I feel like that's like, where we kind of tell ourselves like, we need to watch what we say, you know? I feel like we kind of say that because we do get that, you know, angry black woman title. When we do try to speak what we say, it comes off in a way that people aren't used yeah. to. So then it's like, we kind of back off from saying certain things a certain way because we don't want to get titled that when in reality, all we're trying to do is get our point across, you know? So I just, yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any safer or better here, there is no filter. So feel free to speak your mind as you all have been doing uh, since we started this conversation. How would you say your experiences in school, because three of you went to private schools in the inner city, but as you noted, the makeup could be different. On the basketball court, you would you know, interact with a lot of fellow teammates of color. And away from it, that may not be the case. And Zarina, you talked about going to Como Park. That is an inner city school, and I've covered a lot of games there. I went to Harding in St. Paul, so I can attest to the melting pot that is the student body at schools like Harding, Como Park, Central, et cetera. How do you think your experiences as high school students, how do you think that shaped your perspective of issues involving race now that you're all college students? Um, now that I know what I know, um, I don't know a lot, but I know some. and. What I know, I wish that I could go back to school a lot of times and, and, and know the things that I know when people say things to me, um, like in reference to affirmative action or modern day enslavement or the N-word that my teacher like literally had a whole class discussion on. Should we say the N-word with a classroom full of white kids? It's just I think thinking about all the things that happen in school. But um, yeah, I just realized how racist it is. That's long story short. Um. Going to DSL, I feel like it kind of blinded me to the rest of the world because that school is definitely one of the most diverse schools, especially diverse uh, private schools. So me going to school in the South to a predominantly white school, it definitely woke my eyes up to how lucky I was to be able to last four years at D. But it definitely shielded me to like from looking at what's going on in the rest of the world. Like I would never assume that my coach would be racist towards a player he recruited when I was going to do this though. But now that I've gone to college, I've got more experiences. Like I know now that I was definitely sheltered, so to say, at D. I 
think Minnehaha. Well, no, Minnehaha. It was like a. It was kind of like a bittersweet, I guess, because it wasn't necessarily like I wasn't sheltered, but I also wasn't taught anything. Like a lot of it, like was self-taught. Like what I like, I looked it up on my phone or something. I didn't like really get much, and it was definitely. It's definitely not a very diverse school. I mean, it was like all the black kids were with all the black kids. That was it. Like that was the big group. We all knew each other. We were all friends. We were all cool. And it was, it was definitely, we were kind of looked at as like, I don't want to say the popular, but everybody like liked to like, like know what was going on. I mean, obviously because of like Jalen, like, yeah, they would want to know that too. But it was like, we, like, they always wanted to do like the new dances or like show us how you do dance. Like me and the were always in the middle of the circle. I like the dances, the school dances. And it was like a lot of like, we kind of like want to be with like about your culture, but we also like kind of like want to stay back in like the sense of like the white people. Like they, they liked us, but it was like, let's just keep it like at a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Like the girls in our group, it was always me and Nevaeh and like yeah. Adam and Mia. And that was like, that was as far as me and Nevaeh went in to like the girls in our grade. I mean, I love them. I like a lot of them, but it was like, it was always just like me and Nevaeh. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely, there There was a barrier, I feel mm-hmm. like. Like, a lot of the white kids always wanted to, like she said, like, know what we were doing. And it, which, that's not, that's not a bad thing. But at the same time, they were taking what was special to us, like, our culture, and they weren't trying to learn it. They were trying to mimic it Mm -hmm. they were trying to do do what we do but like you know like use our slang in a way but when they would use those words it would be like but why like you don't talk like (laughs) like you don't like you don't talk like that you don't you didn't do that before we got here so why are you trying to change to I feel like it was like an impress game like they were trying to impress us Mm -hmm. but in reality we didn't care for it we didn't want them to do that we just and we would get categorized into being the loud or ghetto kids at our school I remember there was a meeting that we had and there was like they're like well maybe you guys should chill out a little bit and we're like why we're at lunch (laughs) we can't we can't talk like they're like but you're just being too loud or like telling us that we don't let anybody into our group it's like what do you mean we're just being black at a white school and that's that's what it was and it's like I don't know I just didn't I just felt like there was a barrier and people didn't necessarily like that we weren't all in to go and want to be like them how they wanted to be like us And like when Nevaeh said, when um, she said something about like people, like us letting people in, that was actually like something that happened like with me and Nevaeh and another um, white girl in our grade. And she, during, we had a meeting because there was an argument in class. And so we had a sit down meeting and it was me and the other girl. And she like basically started calling me racist because our group um, didn't let her in and like we didn't accept white people and like all this stuff. And I was like, I don't. I'm I'm friends with you. We can be friends. I I don't speak for anybody else though. I don't I can't tell my friend my group of friends say hey you guys gotta let this white girl in. She's nice. She's cool. I'm not gonna do that. And it's not me being racist by saying that. And she also took offense to because we were having it was during our what was it um, with Miss Kennett 
what's that called? Advisory during our yeah. advisory meeting. We were talking about like baby names or something like that. And I said that I would I want one of my sons to have my last name so I know that like my black family, like my last name knew will like carry on and I want like I would just want it to carry on and she thought that was so racist and I was saying that I hate white people and all this stuff and I'm like no I just want to keep my family alive that's all that I'm saying I'm not saying that I hate my white side or anything like that like that just doesn't even make any sense yeah and part of going to a private school they're so like it's so hard to like get our point across like how we want how we wanted because they're so you know like some of them were so simple-minded to where they didn't want to listen or they didn't want to learn the new things or like when when diversity club wanted to have black history month we only got to have one one tuesday to do anything for black history month and even then you look out in the crowd and they're not paying attention like they don't want to they don't want to learn our history but they want to be part of our culture yeah and that's that's something I never understood. Um, I would say that um, socially, there's probably like very many similarities, but I would say like structurally um, within inner city schools, it's very segregated. Even within the school, you have AP and regular courses. I was personally in AP courses, and then my junior year, I was like, you know what, like I would want to take some regular courses and not like stress myself out. When I tell you that the rigor is night and day, like I, I go to a regular course and they're treating like it's babysitting, like literally like, okay, everybody take out your notebook. We're going to take some notes and it's okay if you don't really participate. It's okay if you just want to fool around because we don't have expectations for you. Like I had a teacher straight up tell me like, we're preparing kids that are in AP courses for four-year institutions and we're preparing these kids for uh, for a community college or nothing. And it's just like, why would you even say that to students and say that you are not worthy? You know what I'm saying? And, and just have this mindset when you're dealing with kids and what kids do is it's not because they're dumb. It's easier to just adapt and say, well, she doesn't think I'm smart. I'm not going to act smart. then. I'm not going to erase the standards for myself. And it was really just sickening to see teachers um, actively participating um, and also to see how teachers treat me differently than they're going to treat my friend who's darker than me. Like, my friend Isabella, um, she was brutalized by the police and she was also like actively targeted in school. Like there, a teacher had to lose her job because she literally said that she deserved it and, and all other type of stuff. And it's like, how are we supposed to feel safe when the literal institution, the people who are teaching us are against us? And then our classmates say something, am I supposed to go tell my racist principal, my racist superintendent? Like, where am I supposed to go when these things are happening to me? So that's when the desensitizing comes in again. Like, people are always like, well, why do you have this chip on your shoulder? Why do you make it about race? Because every single day it's about race because the system that we live in was built on racism and it was built on literally keeping people from, at, from being at a certain table so they can't eat with everybody else and it's still living on today and we have to dismantle those systems and it's really heartbreaking to see that not one school can you think of that there's not going to be students in that school that have experienced institutional racism and that's the problem and we have to do something as a Minnesota community and set the example like no we we need to change uh, curriculums we need to change we need to have mandatory um, black history courses so students can be educated on what it, what 
what the institutions are and white students can be educated on what their privilege is and how they can use it to dismantle the system. And until that happens, nothing's gonna change because it starts with consciousness. It starts with people being educated. Zarina, the dynamic you spoke of at Como Park, I can say the very same thing played out when I was a high school student at Harding because I started in the general courses. I didn't know any better and I didn't have the best uh, leadership growing up. So I had to do a lot of trial and error, but that attitude, that dynamic, you did see a difference between mm -hmm. regular courses and IB and that in itself could be an entirely <laughs> different or a whole nother story on its own. And I made it work, went to college and all of that, but you wonder, like, I turned out fine, but I made the jump into more of those advanced courses uh, to challenge myself, but what happens to those who maybe don't get that intervention or that support as you alluded to. Mm -hmm. And then all of you spoke on something that I've seen recently uh, with all the social media posts that I've read on Twitter and Instagram and this issue of people like myself, and I can't say how many, but those who want to celebrate the culture but not truly understand it, what do you make of that contrast where you have classmates of yours, as you guys were telling me, wanting to fit in or look cool or try to impress you guys. And from what I've gathered, you saw through that. But to me, that's still an issue because there are some things I'll never understand that you went through just because I don't share the color of your skin, but that's fine. But to have others try to co-opt it and not truly understand it, how does that make you feel? It's like someone copies your essay, but doesn't give you credit. Like, I did all the work. Yeah, and you get a, yeah, like, just because, like, I don't know, you're just copying and not giving, like, citing your sources, like, we built that like this is our livelihood that you're getting clout off of that you're getting making money off of and not giving credit to these beautiful people who came up with it so it's just like a big citation problem it's frustrating like like the thing with Kim Kardashian when she put her boxer braids on Instagram and I'm like these aren't even these are cornrows these are not boxer yeah. braids and everybody was going crazy like oh let's do boxer braids they're not even called that you don't even know where they came from or another lady came out with bonnets she said she came out with bonnets and I'm like oh those have been around for a good minute those are nothing new don't it's just like what why is that like going up all now and like when we were doing it back in the day it was like Ugh, what are you doing exactly and that's the issue the issue is not that she's braiding her hair the issue is that when black women braid their hair like that they can't get jobs mm -hmm. right goals or this little this young wrestler they told him that he couldn't win the match that he rightfully won if he didn't cut off his, cut off his dreads in yeah, front of the right. whole entire station and then and even the word dreads that was created by the white system to to make dread locks feel 
less powerful because black hair, when you connect it, is strong and it can stay together. Um, so they call it locked. It's powerful. But when they when you call it dreadlock, it was literally a, like a Supreme Court case. Um, I will have to look up the details about it. But it's racism is so ingrained in our language, um, in everything that we do. And and when you just want to be like, oh, I like her hair. I'm going to wear it like this. And now everyone's taking pictures of you like, whoa, look at that new style. That's beautiful. Meanwhile, this girl sitting over here is getting bullied for it. Um, and then also like during times of enslavement, um, there were actually people who would braid roadmaps to um, the North or whatever the case yeah. may be, have messages um, braided. And, and that these are things that we have to do to adapt to extreme oppression. So then for somebody else to just come and take it and say, well, this is cute on me um, and disregard everything that you had to went to go through to even have that hairstyle, um, that's, when real, that's when the real issue comes in. We wish that it wasn't about race. We wish that everybody could just wear the same hairstyle and we could all be friends, yay, yay, yay. But as we see, people are dying on the street. People are not given equal opportunities. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with everything that she just said, especially like how, like, you know, you see Kim, like Avery said, like Kim Kardashian, she was praised for it. We, we wear braids. I know I wore braids. I put in box braids for one time and somebody was like, but you're mixed. And I'm like, but what does that have to do with anything? You know, like, it's not about who's wearing them. Like they said, it's about understanding where it came from and understanding that you can't just take from us that's all it's been is take 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 we don't get credit for this stuff so it's like I understand that I'm mixed but at the same time like I would never like you know just take like I would educate somebody like I did when I had my braids like it's like you have to understand where it came from you can't just say but I made it but I look good in it so so now that's what it's going to be like, no. Zarina, I know I'm real good friends with one of your mentors and advocates in LaToya. And however your parental figures come to form, whether they're biological or spiritual, how would you say the people who helped you become who you are, how did they help you understand or help you appreciate who you are? Um, well, just being raised around basically just my mom and stuff, I was always kind of lost to who I was because I know I was like her, but also different. Um, so I think being able to have a black woman around really helped me because I'm a woman, you know, like my dad was never around and stuff like that. So she's going to be able to understand um, different things that I was never really able to explain or put a name on. I think a lot of times we grow up and like, oh, dang, is there something wrong with me? You know, like, but really it's like something that happens to everybody on different levels. Um, so she's extremely important, not only to learn about race and who I am racially, but who I am as a person, who I am, that I am powerful, that I do have the the way, like the, regardless of my my parents or whatever, I have the power to make a difference in my life. And I think that's something that a lot of Black children specifically are missing because when you turn on the TV, you don't see somebody that looks like you that's being successful. You don't see somebody that looks like you who maybe has the same background as you that um, wants to do something that you want to do. So it's like, can I even do it? So to, to run into somebody who believes in you, like, and I wasn't the best basketball player at all. <laughs> so don't look at any of my films. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> people know. Y'all know. 
like, Zarina, you still score far more points than I ever will. So you've got at least you have that in your pocket. I got more what? More points. Well, yeah. you scored more points. Like I, I mean, no, I'm just saying I had no athletic ability whatsoever. So you've got me beat in, in the scoring category. But uh, and, thank you for that. And, and, that, and it's okay if you're not a superstar athlete. You know that's not why you're here. Exactly. <laughs> that's not why I thought of you. Or why you yes, were. I know that's not why I'm here. Thank you. <laughs> you don't have to win a state tournament to be a, a positive influence in the community. <laughs> Hey, look, I was in that tournament for a couple minutes. Not a couple minutes, probably like... You were. You were. Okay, yeah, 2016, right? That's right, you were. Lord, okay. Well, I say all that to say, regardless of my basketball player status, she still valued me as a player. And that's something that really stuck out to me. Because a lot of times when you feel like you suck and you're weak, your whole, team is, your whole team is good, but you're weak. You know what I'm saying? It's like, dang, like... Um, so, but she, but she still like pointed out the good things that I do. And I'm like, I added value to the team in other ways. So, and I was okay with that. And I think that's another thing I learned from basketball is like, you don't have to be the best player on the team to add value and stuff. Like, if you want to look up films, you can see that I was on the bench. Okay. We was the starting chance and doing all that. And I think that um, encouragement really goes a long way, but yeah, I say all that to say that I hope she helped me find my value as a person. And on that subject, for the rest of you, and Zarina, feel free to chime in as well if you'd like. How would you say your role as athletes help prepare you to give you the platform that you're using now to speak out against microaggressions or macroaggressions, uh, but also maybe just become more comfortable with yourselves? Because you know maybe you weren't the star athletes or didn't get a chance to win a title. I know. Nevaeh and Avery, you did for Minnehaha, and then Serena and Olivia, you went to state tournaments. Uh, but even if you didn't score as many points as someone like Andrea Adams or Mia Curtis, how do you think taking part in athletics helped prepare you for what's out there? Um, I would say, like, the leadership role. Um, you – once you – I don't know. Once you get like named captain, I feel like that's kind of like, okay, now I'm in it. Like now I can, I know for sure that I had, I had everything that makes me a leader. So like my senior year, I was volleyball and basketball captain. So it's like, I'm helping my team and, you know, I didn't score too much all the time, but like, I would always encourage my teammates or like senior year basketball, I would always be like, pick your head up, let's go. Like, I know my um, coach actually told me at the end of the season, he was like, you didn't do like, it was like, I had a voice. I had something that my teammates looked up to and just like finding my voice my senior year was what helped me go into college and be like, okay, I can still have that voice. I found my voice even like with all this Black Lives Matter stuff, like I have been very vocal and there has been many people that have said like, you, you're still using the platform, you know, being an athlete, you get a platform just because you're an athlete. So you can voice what you say, you know, you see Chrissy Carr, she's doing so much and, you know, helping so much. She just, what was it? She said that if they didn't change, she wouldn't play like, Mm -hmm. That's using your voice as an athlete positively. 
Whereas like sometimes people kind of use that because they feel like they have power over their teammates or whatever. But I always use it as I want to help, you know, like that's where I got that from. Like I want my, don't want my teammates to be down. Like we'll be running suicides. Obviously I don't want to run them, but I'm going to tell them that we need to do it because that's what's going to make us better. So like transferring that into the real world, we don't want things to happen. So then we need to use our voices. So that's kind of what I got from it. Definitely the same thing for me. And it wasn't even necessarily about like, it was more of me coming out of my shell. Cause I used to be like super shy. I don't really like to talk to people. And like the older I've gotten, I'm like really like more open and I like, I'm willing to have a conversation with really honestly anybody now. And I definitely think that that is, that was from like being, not only being with like the girls that I've known for like ever, but just being in like a safe space with the team. And my senior year, like me and Nevea, we, we were like pretty much the ones who was always talking. Like yeah. who, Matt would yell at everybody else but us because we were always like so vocal, like during drills, like all of it. And I think that that really helped me come out of my shell. Like I used to hate public speaking. I hated it like so bad. And like, I, I'm fine with it now. I like, I'm out of my comfort zone. I think that's honestly really helped me and just not like even like really caring what other people think about me. So that's definitely helped. Yeah, I just want to like reiterate the fact that like, like drafting over from like basketball to like the movement, the social justice movement, every single person has a role on the team. Um, the person who rides the bench is there for the encouragement, grabbing the water, helping, making sure like all these things are important so the people who are on the front lines have the energy, have the support, have the encouragement to help your team win. Um, the coach is there to organize. They might not have the athletic ability, but they're there to be like, look, I have the vision. Um, the ref is there to make sure everything is fair, you know? Um, the other team is there for competition. You know, obviously in this sense, we don't really want the good competition. Right. <laughs> Uh, it's just like everything, but but at the same time, as Black people, we have become so much stronger, so much more strategic, so much more cultured because of what we got, we have been through. Um, so I think that like you know you you could be on a team like I played for Washington. I don't know if y'all know about St. Paul, Washington, but we didn't win a game. I remember like the second year we were on the team. Oh my gosh, the coach was like, we doubled our wins from last year, it was <laughs> and I was just like. Why'd you say that? <laughs> but we had fun as a team. We learned things. We traveled. We had fun. We knew we were going to lose every game that we went into, but we still played. So um, I don't know. I, I just think that there's a lot of similarities um, from basketball to real life, whether it's the movement, whether it's working, um, whether it's like having to do killers, even though you weren't the one who missed the shot. Like, it's a team sport. Yeah. And it's that confidence piece. Like, if you can't step up to the line and make some free throws, you definitely can't go march in a protest. Like, you literally just get so much confidence from just being a part of a team, like holding yourself accountable. Like, it really does carry over into the real world. I I also, like, feel like even those games where, you know, we wouldn't win, I never, like, looked at them. I always looked at the positives. Like, for example, when we played Olivia um that year that <laughs> when we played Olivia like we were down by so much and as much as our coach was telling us like we weren't playing well there were certain parts of the games where like 
we were telling each other, pick your head up, let's go. Doesn't matter how, how far back we were, we still tried our hardest to play. Like, and so he took us all out the game. <laughs> then it was like, okay, we can't do anything. But then it's like, for a while, like, we did kind of sit there. You look at the film. We did sit there, and we looked sad. But that's who wouldn't be sad, you know? But, like, we did – we still told our players, like, that were in the game. We still cheered for them. We still were like, it's okay. Like, get back, you know? You can't stop in the middle of the game. You can't stop protesting, you know? Like, we can't stop trying to make a change, you know? So, you know, there's a balance. There's a – you go – you take a lot from the basketball court, put it into real world, like they said. And Nevea Avery Olivia, I wanted to give you a chance the way Zarina did uh, when she spoke of the people who mentored her. Nevea, I know your mother is part of the staff at High School for Recording Arts. Yeah. And Olivia, I know you come from uh, an athletic family. And Avery, I don't think I've met your parents officially, but I'll never forget uh, speaking of mentorship when I covered a mini haha game and I didn't realize I was talking to Larry Suggs and I thought he was your dad and he goes over and has a little fun with it. And he goes, Avery, am I your dad? And I think you said something along the lines of, Oh, it feels like it. <laughs> uh, but whether they're your parents or folks like the Suggs, because I know Larry does a lot of work and the Suggs family uh, with both the men's and women's teams at Minnehaha Academy, who are some of the mentors you had that helped you become comfortable speaking out, become comfortable with your identity as part of the black community and just comfortable with yourself? Definitely my dad for me. Um, he, he was always, he's, he um, coached at Arlington football and track. Um, he played at Central. He was like, he was big back in his day, back, back in his day. Um, but he, yeah, he was always, he was the one who honestly taught me basketball. I mean, I clear, he clearly wanted a son for sports, but he got me. And we were always training day and night. Um, him and my friend, Hala, they, um, him and her dad, they started a like little boot camp. We called it KG boot camp for us and the team. And like, we would go work on drills. Um, so he taught me a lot about basketball, but he also made sure like I knew who I was. Like he constantly was teaching me about like successful black women or like black queens. Like he always made sure I thought as myself as a black queen um, and made sure like I was comfortable with being in my own skin. Um, and my mom helped a lot with that too. And so did her family, because I have a really open family. So it wasn't like anything like there's like tension between the two. It's just like a really open family. So it was it was all around effort. And a lot of the women, the black women in my family, they're like really independent. So I got a lot of what I needed from them. So, I mean, I, I honestly grew up with like a whole community of teachers. I, yeah, I was kind of set in that standpoint. Um, I would say my mom my mom definitely i didn't grow up with my dad in my life so i didn't really have that male figure to like my dad is um black and my mom is mixed so like i didn't have that side of my family really um my mom was the main one who you know made me who i am today like she taught me the ins and out of life being black being mixed 
Um, and I would say my grandpa was my male figure um, growing up. A lot of people know my grandpa um, as a leader in the community, um, which that was also another thing, like me kind of trying to live up to my last name, um, you know, and once I got into basketball, it was Larry helping uh, helping me out um, a lot, um, Tremont, um, and then also Avery's dad, like, I know after games, like, I would think I would have the worst game ever, but then he would be like, you did good, like, pick your head up, and then he would give me a hug, and like, you know, just having those, those moments where people, people step in as a figure in your life to, like, help you grow, especially Gary, like, I would have conversations with him for a couple minutes after my games and even then like I would think I'd have a bad game but then like he would pull me into a spot to where I didn't think I could go you know and I did have coach Latoya uh she coached me for a while um I still I the conversations that she has with certain people I listen to them and I read them and she is a leader she is a mentor and she is a person that you want in your life and when i did have her in my life i appreciated every single conversation that i had with her because she every every conversation is eye-opening you know like i did everybody that i've had in my life has always had eye-opening conversations so yeah i mean teach like growing up in school like i didn't have teachers that i looked up to really it was really just the people that I had with basketball or the people I came home to. So, uh, Personally, I mean, all my cousins on my mom's side are biracial. All my, half my cousins on my dad's side are biracial. So like, I thought my whole life, all our family gatherings have been about teaching and like, no, now you have, a black daughter you need to know how to like do this and that like you can't get away with your privilege anymore so I feel like my whole life has just been adults family friends just always teaching like I've never a good or a bad experience I've always learned something from someone I don't have like a pinpoint person who's like impacted me but everybody's definitely taught me a lot even going off of what she said, like the white privilege, like even like everybody on my mom's side, like my aunt, she's so like conscious of everything that's going around. Like she even calls herself out when she's doing like white privilege things. And like, she's very, she, she even educates me sometimes on things that I didn't even know. And it's honestly crazy. Like she's just really, she's really out there. She works at St. Kate, so she's a professor there. So she's all about like the LGBTQ community and everything. So she teaches me a lot too. I'd say a lot of stuff that like, I don't even think about. Like she takes like little things, like she'll listen to one little thing and she'll like correct you on it like instantly. So that, that has definitely helped me like all around in like every like community, I'd say. Olivia, earlier you spoke of your former coach at Trevecca and his microaggressions. And I know you're gonna be playing at Illinois Springfield but how would you say what happened there? You mentioned going to De La Salle, kind of being in a bubble that you left when you went to Trevecca. How do you think uh, your experience there? You played a couple of seasons, uh, but how do you think that 
will help you become more astute, if that's the right word, to what's out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, just going through that whole two years, it feels like traumatizing right now, but I'm sure when I'm older, it won't, but it definitely helped me. I already have been on like many Zoom calls with my new school, just informing people, teaching people. Like, I know it's definitely gonna be a new experience because they're openly talking about race. My old school, if you talked about race, you were probably like shunned, like it's that type of deal. So I definitely feel like I now have like a lock off of my voice and actually can speak up and have people behind me supporting me and I'm definitely a lot stronger for what I went through with my past coach and that I know it helped me make a better decision on my new school so I'm not gonna I want to go back and redo what happened but I definitely grew a lot from it. And Zarina, as you've noted, you attend Spelman in HBCU, and you spoke of how that experience really opened your eyes in ways you hadn't anticipated before. What would you make of your time at Spelman so far? And on top of that, I know you do a lot of, uh, I think, spoken word and music recordings. So, you know, you're showcasing your chops as a performance artist. How do you think those two experiences are helping you understand your voice? Um, well, I'm really still learning as well. Um, it's, it's all, it's all a growing process, um, but I think it's just, it's giving me more confidence to be who I am. And really something that I mainly learned at Spelman is everything is an institutionalized structure, like racism, sexism, all of these things were premeditated and planned. And the things that we have in our day-to-day -day life are a result of these structures. Um, and I think that is, it's um, eye-opening in this, it's overwhelming in the sense that there's structures, but it's also kind of like a relief to know, like, this isn't about me. When, when somebody's calling me um, names because they don't like the fact that I'm black or they don't like the fact that I'm white or they don't like the fact that I'm mixed, it's not because of me being mixed, it's because of the system that makes them think that way. So that's something that I'm trying to start taking myself out of the narrative and realizing that it's a much bigger picture. That's what Spellman has helped me realize. And when it comes to rapping, I'm a rapper, um, like it's just given me confidence to do that. I, I, at first I didn't wanna do it because I didn't wanna seem like I was cultural appropriating or being like, you know, just like somebody just, a light-skinned girl just want to hop on the trend, you know, basically. Um, but it's it's a God-given gift. And I have to realize, like, when I came down here, um, a lot of things were just in my head, basically. Like, people, when I started rapping, some people didn't like it, but majority of the people were like, wow, keep going. So um, that's something I realized. A lot of the barriers that we have are in our head. And Avery, I understand your basketball days are behind you, but you spoke of your experience as an athlete, your experience at Minnehaha and how that helped you become more comfortable with public speaking, with using your voice. And so how do you see yourself using your platform moving forward, whether it's a career aspiration or even just speaking out when you deal or hear about issues involving prejudice and racism? 
how would you say your voice has grown as you've, as you're making your way through the college yeah. experience? Um, I'd say I'm definitely more vocal, vocal about my opinions. Like at college, I go to a community college, but it's, it's so much more diverse and I feel more comfortable talking about like topics with people. So I definitely like try to teach like what I know to other people. Um, me and my English professor, we have a lot of heart to heart conversations about things. Um, and even so much as like still talking to kids and teachers from Minnehaha. I think I'm more, like I feel like I'm more equipped, I guess in a sense, um, to talk about these things because I don't, I don't like really hold back anymore, I guess you could say. And um, like one of our counselors, Miss uh, Monroe, I talk to her quite frequently actually about like different racial things. And I honestly want to start using my voice more in my, within my family because we have a lot of biracial children in my family and I don't know necessarily that they know their place yet. And, um, and even talking to like some of my cousins because their dad is also police officers. So they're kind of like stuck in like a hard place. And so like, I think I want to like start something for like my cousins or something just so we can like all talk and like have like a comfortable place to like voice our opinions because I think that's something that a lot of biracial children need in a sense because a lot of them just don't really know like where they belong and what side they should be on. So I think having a voice now that that'll help me try to create something at least. And Avia, you went to Bemidji State for a year. Uh, now you'll be going to Iowa Central and before we came on, you spoke of the experience at Bemidji State be not fitting in with what you th thought or what you expected. And I don't know if it dealt with issues involving racial equity or not. But that being said, what are you looking forward to as you chart the next course at Iowa Central? And what did you take away from your first season at Bemidji State that you feel maybe helped you better understand things? Um, I would, I would say, yeah, I left, um, Bemidji because, um, there was some diversity, but not too much. And, you know, at Minnehaha, it was kind of like Minnehaha. And you have your group of black kids and then the rest, you know, majority white. So it's like, I didn't want to go through that again. Um, so I look forward to all the diversity at Iowa Central, um, even on the team, you know, on Bemidji, um, it was myself and one other um, African-American girl on the team. So I look forward to, you know, the community feel um, on the team at Iowa Central. You know, there's a lot of inner city girls going there. Um, so that's one thing that I'm looking forward to take away from Bemidji. Um, I don't really have a takeaway. I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't fully enjoy it, but it wasn't my favorite place to be. Um, I'm just ready to be in a community to where I don't have to feel like I'm depressed all the time because I can't um, connect with the people that I'm around or feel like I belong or 
you know, see more than just a few people that look like me on campus. So um, after leaving Iowa Central, that's definitely going to be something that I'll look for in my new school after my two years or one year at this community college is diversity. You know, like that's something that I need and something that I feel would be good for me because I just want to be around people that I connect with or feel like I don't have to hold back from. And with these panels, there are a couple of questions that I ask of all of them, just because I feel it's important that we hear what you have to say. What do we need to do, and I stress we, to move this conversation, to move this forward, so that we don't have to talk about racism and prejudice in the context of another hashtag, of another George Floyd, or Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, Richard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, it's this long, long list of names of people who should still be here. How do we move this forward in light of what's happened in this last month so we can truly use this opportunity to bring effective change? I think one small thing is um, encouraging people of color to get into the police force. Not, because I know a lot of people are talking about defunding the police and like starting up their own thing, but I think we still need to like teach men and women um, of color that it's okay to be a police officer and like we need more of them out there so like like fewer situations happen because then maybe well okay they look like us so maybe they're gonna I don't know spice some things up or something I don't know but I think that's definitely one thing that so many kids shy away from is like they start out young wanting to be a police officer and then learn about like all the stuff that's happening and then they shy away from it and I think that's something that needs to be changed, that um, it's okay to be a police officer and be colored. And I think uh, never, no. Go ahead. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> um, I think just never stop talking about it. Like, not even if we ever become equal, never stop talking about it. Like, conversations like this need to be had needs to happen every day until people finally are tired of talking about it and actually do something about it. And like change actually happens within our government, within the everything, we just actually get something to happen. So we have to continue to talk about it. I would say we need to, yes, continue talking about it, but also continue wanting to learn about it. Um, and teach about it, um, you know, put it in schools and not just Black History Month, you know, make it something that kids learn so that we're not going into the world and be like, oh, but why is this happening? You know, like we just, it needs to be taught and it, it's, I feel like it should be taught at a young age also, um, you know, having more Black educators would be something that um, would change a lot of things. Um, just like we need to just keep using our voices the best that we can. Um, I know everybody's big thing is 
arrest the police officers that are doing these things. But that's not that's something that we can control by continuing to protest and continuing to talk about it. But for the time being, it is teaching and learning and wanting to learn and being open to hearing new voices and new ideas, you know? I think that there are many different levels of what can and should be done. Um, yeah. And it also depends on who you are and what role you play. Um, I think for allies, um, well, actually for people in general, for one, it starts with education, because if you don't know the system that you're up against, how could we possibly come up with ways to, to make a difference? Um, structurally, um, I mean, in my opinion, all of it needs to be torn up and, and reconstructed. But um, in the meantime, uh, changing the cu curriculum within schools, um, for one, like there needs to be mandatory curriculums. Black history shouldn't even be a thing. It should be history, period, because we are ingrained into the history of this country. There is no America without black people. Um, and that's what needs to be taught because education leads to these thinking, these thoughts of superiority, like, well, we invented all of this. We're the presidents. You guys have just been here as enslaved people. Um, there's nothing really more to you, and that's not the case. So if we start out from the beginning telling kids the truth of what happened, people were kidnapped, forced to work, people fought to the bone to, to fight, fight for freedom. But freedom is a never-ending battle. Shout out Angela Davis, uh, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Um, there's so many books and literature out there. Um, and again, like uh, these conversations and these, these strategies have been happening um, for centuries. So if you really want to have hands-on action, figure out what you're passionate about. For instance, mass incarceration, there's groups out there working on it. Email them. Ask, how can you help? How can you volunteer? I'm sure there's ally groups out there. If, you, if you're an ally and you want to figure out how you can help, donate some funds. Donate your time. Um, educate other white people on the, the effects of systematic uh, racism. Um, there's a lot of different things that can be done. It's just a matter of how serious are you about wanting to make it happen. And even going off of the education, even like in-state education, like what has happened in your state needs to be like really out there because like there was a lot that I had just even learned that happened in Minnesota that I didn't even know about. Um, and I think that that's really important because so many people think, oh, they're up north, that's where the slaves ran to, nothing really happened up there, but that's just not even close to being the case. Exactly. Wow, that's so amazing because when I went to the um, African American History Museum in DC and, and to see Minnesota on the wall multiple times, I'm like, yeah. wow, I'm in DC and they're talking about some of the great, the biggest mass lynchings of both Native and Black people happened in Minnesota. And it's like, wow, like that, that really goes to show you how deep racism goes in, in our state. And to your point, Serena, even if the casualties uh, weren't if there weren't any casualties like there was with the lynchings and you would know this well i think all of you do i-94 going through the rondo neighborhood and that caused severe repercussions for that area that are still being felt in some ways and what you all talk about actually leads to a question and it's something that i ask because i know i've had to learn a lot about historical moments in black history on my own or through movies, things that I don't recall being taught in school, like the film Hidden Figures, the women who were responsible for the first uh, lunar launch or Selma. 
I think maybe I heard something about it or I remember the you know, church bombing that was a precursor to it, but not to the level of detail that the film did or 13th or uh, all these other deals. Juneteenth, I didn't know that was a thing until a few years ago. So for you, I know you've all touched on this already, but were there any moments with black history that surprised you when you found out about it with Avery, I think your aunt telling you things you never heard of. Serena, you've spoke of this and I think everyone else can attest to this as well. Some things that when you heard about it for the first time surprised you that it wasn't part of a curriculum or part of an ongoing conversation. For me, it was definitely the Duluth lynchings. I didn't know about that. Um, and I had actually just found out um, right after George Floyd had been killed. I, I obviously knew that things had happened in Minnesota, but I didn't know personally about the Duluth lynchings. And that um, was kind of a shocker to me, I guess I could say, just because you don't, I mean, yeah, we know that racism, like racist stuff happens in Minnesota, but it's not like, oh, like, it's not like, it's not like how you think happens like down South or whatnot. Like Minnesota, you just are just kind of like, yeah, we have it, but it's like, yeah, is it really happening? And George Floyd definitely opened that, like opened my eyes up to that, that like how much is really going on in Minnesota. But yeah, I definitely say the Duluth lynchings. I didn't know anything about. I would say um, a while ago, you know, you know, when we, talk about history they say there was like the underground railroads and all that but they don't necessarily go too deep into the underground railroads like they just say this is what it was you know this like the outline but I actually went to like a reenactment of the underground railroads um here in Minnesota um and it was such like an eye-opening experience like they really had to sneak and they really had like certain cold words and certain things that they had to go through that we didn't learn in school. I, I learned that from the reenactment. And it's just like, I was scared. I was scared while I was doing it. So just to imagine like in real life, like how it was, um, that was probably like one of the biggest things that I've learned just like, everything that we learn is only like from the outside. We don't always learn everything. Um, the biggest thing I learned was about my own like family heritage. Like I took anthropology my senior year at D and we had to do our family tree. And I don't know much about my dad's side. So we went to an aunt I have never met before. And she literally told us and come to find out my great, great grandfather was white and had fathered probably eight kids with my great great grandmother but I mean it was forced fathering forced mothering and they had to separate all the kids like Travis isn't our last name it came from a family we were forced to live with so about my age while learning about black people all together like it's definitely the biggest thing i've learned so far or came shocking to me is that my dad is still like a quarter white and we never knew 
Yeah, um, I can attest to that as far as like when I did my ancestry DNA. Um, I, obviously, my like, it, there's like a lot of different little percentages here and there, but clearly my dad was mixed with some other things too. I'm not sure how that happened, but um, some things uh, that really surprised me is mainly within the medical industry, um, the history of how black women were tortured essentially, not only black women, black men as well, um, with a syphilis test, with HIV, yeah. with um, just everything that you can think of. Like you wonder, how do we know these things about the human body? Well, that's because actual humans had to sit and endure those things. Um, something that just surprised me over the years, just the, the amount of, the level of brutality. The level of brutality um, is something that I can't stop thinking about because it's still happening today. Um, but I could go down a long list of things that happen to our people. Um, and, and energy we all learn in school cannot be um, destroyed. It can only be transferred. So that pain had to go somewhere. And that pain is still in us. That pain genetically lives within us. Um, so that's something that, that was very interesting. And then also um, how white passing biracial people were able to use their passing status um, to be in a lot of different um, situations um, as far as like the Underground Railroad, owning property, letting people come through, um, and then also the allegiance between poor white folks and black people, and, and not just poor white folks, but, but white people for the movement, abolitionists, um, how big of a role that played. And I think that is very important to be teaching to white students, especially because it's like, look, like when you, when you teach white people about the fact that white people are racist, evil, colonized, and slave and brutality. It's like, yikes, I don't want to be white. I don't want to tell people I'm white and I feel guilty of being white. And I just feel uncomfortable when I'm around black people because I know the history of it. But if you learn about the white people who have the courage to say, you know what, I'm going to put my privilege aside or not only put it aside, but use my privilege to help people who are being persecuted. Because if I was born black, I would hope a white person would do that for me. Then it's like, that's when the tables turn. You don't have to um, feed into the system. Um, so there's a lot of different things that surprised me about Black history just because it's so suppressed from us and it's so, it goes against like what we're um, intrinsically taught from the beginning. Um, so it, I'm constantly in a state of like, wow, like also learning about the, the amount of things that Black people invented, um, like the stoplight, like so many different things. It's just like, wow, like we really did contribute a lot. And it also makes you question all of the history that's there. Because if, if you're telling me that a slave owner invented something, I'm automatically questioning it. How? How did you invent something if you have people who are literally catering to your every need? You know, so I don't know. It's just, it just really makes you think, like, what is true? Zarina, your story reminded me of when I did a series of stories about the links honoring Philando Castile and taking up the Black Lives Matter movement as part of their cause. And Rebecca Brunson relayed a story about her grandmother during World War II. Uh, she lived, I think it was Germany. Yeah, I believe it was in Germany or she would, I do remember that her grandmother spoke out. Her grandmother is white and spoke out against the genocide that was taking place of the Jewish population and was scheduled to be executed but uh, Allied forces liberated her territory the day before. And so it's kind of fun, strange to think about how close uh, we might have been to not having someone, an athlete to celebrate. But to your point, Serena, even way back when there were people who were trying to speak out. And one of those stories that 
might be lost in the shuffle uh, without your voices. And something else I ask of my panelists when I do these, what do you admire most about being biracial, being part of the black community, and just being who you are? What do you admire most about being female members of this community and being part of this change? I would say I really admire everything. Like, just being able to be a part of it, like, being, like, this is cliche because a lot of people say it, but, like, being Black is actually beautiful. Like, there's so much that comes with being Black that other races don't get to experience, you know? Like, and being able to be a part of this big change, like, we're going to be able to tell people down the road, like, we were part of something that was big, that was really important. And I feel like that's what I admire. I really admire that. Like, I'm going to be able to tell people that I was part of the change, you know. I think being from Minnesota, being from somewhere where it, like, where it really started, like, everything started right here in Minnesota. And it's, it's honestly nice to say that, especially because nobody really paid attention to Minnesota before this. Um, but yeah, and definitely being like somebody like a younger kid, but not too young, you know, so like being able to have like stories to tell during all of this is, is definitely going to be nice. Um, I feel like my biggest thing with being like biracial and I feel like an ally and part of the oppressed. So I feel like every day I have a chance to educate people who normally wouldn't walk up to a darker skinned girl and get educated. But I feel like I have that voice and that privilege to do that. And I feel like coming out of this, I'll definitely have, I definitely have a stronger voice and definitely it carries some weight now being from Minnesota. So yeah. Well, I think um, I definitely agree with you, Olivia, like as far as be feeling like an ally and feeling like a part of the oppressed and we have a lot of power there and we we also choose like we can use our privilege um to kind of like hide try to hide our blackness fit in or we can say you know what i'm gonna like speak out and, and stand up for this whole other half of me so um yeah I, th I think that's a really good point like how people would feel more comfortable talking to you that's actually a proven study is that white people feel more comfortable talking to mixed race people about race because they feel like they can identify more so we can really use that privilege and i think the main part uh, about what we can do is educate ourselves. So when we are in those situations, we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And how do you see your roles as advocates, as citizens, how do you see that evolving over time? You've all touched on how you've all grown, become more comfortable with yourselves. So in that capacity, what do you see yourselves doing to help promote equality, justice, and just to create an atmosphere where folks like yourselves, biracial or not, that men and women of color can go about their lives and feel safe. I personally want to um, use my music to uh, bring awareness and um, also create like my long-term goal is to have like an entertainment company where it's like all black art being so showcased, black artists and black directors, black everything, because 
um, a lot of times, especially dark-skinned actresses and actors, can't get roles because they literally are only supposed to play slave roles. And that, and again, when we're talking about like brutality, we're not just talking about physical things. It is brutal that we grow up feeling like we're worth nothing and that we don't have opportunities and that the only way to succeed is to put on a European suit and, and impress somebody of a higher stature so you can be paid. Like if we need to have self mind liberation and, and the way that we can do that is through media, is through the arts. So I want to penetrate that sector um, and, and operate in my purpose, you know? Um, yeah. I would say um, mine would probably be to keep using my voice, but also um, my major is elementary education. And to some people, it's like, what can you teach a kid that they will remember? But that's when people really learn. And I still remember a whole bunch from, I like remember the teachers that wanted to be there. You know, like you remember from being a kid, like I just want to be that impact, the person that can impact the child's life. And they can go home and be like, guess what I learned today, you know? And it's like, they can, you keep that. You learn when you're young. And if I'm able to teach a kid while they're young to the rights and wrongs or like even just put it into their mind so that they can go on and teach while they're getting older, that's what I'm gonna do. Doesn't matter if people think like they're not gonna listen. If, they, if they're if they interested, they will listen and they will teach kids their age and even teach adults, you know? I learned things from my nine-year-old sister that I didn't even know, you know, so that's that's kind of my main goal is to be an impact in a kid's life so that they can impact others Definitely. i'd say the same thing as Nivea. i'm kind of bouncing between majors right now whether or not i go for nursing or working with kids with special needs um but i'd say definitely same thing as Nivea for the teaching aspect but for the nursing um trying to teach like the fellow nurses on how to properly care for people of color because that's such a big thing right now, especially women during pregnancy. They just don't get like the help that they truly need and so many black women die from childbirth. So definitely something along those lines and like teaching like my fellow coworkers about like what needs to happen and what needs to change and, um, and how to feel more comfortable, I guess, working with people um, of color and how like they should handle like certain situations. Um, I'm going into marketing with a minor in graphic design and communications. So I my goal in like a long run is to be a marketer for Black-owned businesses and work for nonprofits or I don't know, I don't want to work for some big organization like Twitter or something when I know they're literally the trends are made off of Black people. So I want to just give back to being that voice for them in any way I can. And I will close with this, although with a lot of the subjects you brought up, I feel like we could be here all day and I would learn a lot. You've all provided very insightful, poignant details about the experiences of being women of color, but Throughout this conversation, you've all talked about the journey, the struggle, and the satisfaction of finding your voice, 
being comfortable with who you are, being comfortable with speaking out, being comfortable with sharing your stories, your voice, your platform. So to anyone, whether they're high school students or even adults, because I feel a lot of folks have, are going through similar struggles like you did, for those who are trying to figure out what they can do or how to use their voice, their platform, what advice would you offer them? Listen, um, keep an open mind, I would say. If you feel like you don't, you have an opinion, be open to listen to other people's opinions because that's how you learn and that's how you are more impactful, I would say. And also don't necessarily hold back. Um, yep. Like just, just kind of be open with like what your beliefs are. And like, if somebody doesn't like it and they just simply don't like it, that it's, it's your, your own personal beliefs at the same time. Just stay educating and don't stop learning yourself as you educate others. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because when I tell you it's not comfortable to learn about your privilege, it's not comfortable to learn that, you know, like being light-skinned and being biracial, it's not comfortable to be put on this pedestal for something you can't control while people that you love um, are being discriminated against. So it's uncomfortable, but that's the way it is. Zarina, I can relate in the sense of moderating these panels putting myself in positions where I may not know all the answers. And in some cases I'll never know all the answers, but I'm a guy and I've been this way, whether it's covering you as basketball athletes or even having this conversation, I want to learn as much as I can about your post-up moves or the advocacy or all of the things you are doing to make a difference. So uh, there are some moments where I have a hard time looking for words just because I'm he hearing stories that, I know I would never have to experience personally, but I'm glad you all have shared yourselves and made yourselves vulnerable to an extent to illustrate why we need to have these conversations. So I'm just thankful that you all came on to provide a little insight today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and just quickly, if anyone wants to continue this dialogue with you, on uh, one-on-one -on -one or in a group chat, how can they get a hold of you? Um, probably any social media, really. Yeah. I'm always open. I'm always answering everything that anybody has to say. So, any of my social media. Yeah, definitely. We should drop our socials in the chat. And we'll have a graphic with your social handles if you like so folks can see it and follow up with you guys because uh, whatever career you go into it sounds like you all have a mission you all understand what you want to do you have a goal in mind so no matter how it comes you have a destination you want to reach and I am absolutely sure you'll find a way to get there so once again, our panel of college students, Olivia Travis, you will see her get buckets at Illinois Springfield <laughs> after two years at Trevecca. Zarina Cementelli, who is taking up rap artistry. And I remember from your Beat the Odds 
finalist video, you are looking into perhaps being a lawyer at some point. I don't know if that's changed, but you do. Yeah. So, so keep an eye out for Zarina as a music artist and as an attorney down the road, making a difference. And Avery, I know you'll continue to learn and grow as you make your way through college and Avea Galloway, check her out at Iowa Central. And no matter what happens with your careers in sports or in life, I'm excited to see what you all do. I'm just super thankful that you all came on. And it would be an understatement to say I learned a lot just from listening to the four of you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great conversation. Yeah. It, it was a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to having more, whether it's with you or with another group of panelists. And we certainly will have more conversations on this YouTube channel and beyond. And if you want to take part in a panel discussion or just come on to a one on one, share your thoughts about George Floyd, the movement for racial justice, and how your role in sports is intersected with that. Just contact us at tsbtelevision at gmail.com. Nothing's off the table. If you've got a story, we'd love to hear it. So that does it for this panel discussion of Mike Up Sports. We'll see you next time. If you'd like to support TSB Television programming, check us out on Patreon, PayPal, or Cash App. And thanks for watching Mic'd Up Sports.